the problem that you're, you're asking, you're looking for, or the questions that you are, are asking. So uh, today we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the end of that chapter. Um, a few weeks ago, my wife and I had the opportunity to go to North Carolina to babysit our grandchildren while our daughter and son-in-law were out on a business trip, and it's kind of a business trip slash um, their anniversary. So uh, come Sunday morning, now Ava is five years old, Silas is three, come Sunday morning, um, I thought, well, we need to have a worship service with the kids. So uh, I turned on the TV, and the, they, they go to the Summit, and there's the, called the Summit Kids, and it has all their worship stuff on there. I, I turned it on and brought it up on the TV, and, and they're just like singing, they're dancing all over the place, and just like this... I love, I love worshiping with kids because like, there's no hindrance, there's no worried about what other people are thinking, uh, it's just unhindered, unbridled worship, and they're just running around singing to the top of their lungs and worshiping and, and just having an incredible time. And this weekend, we had our grandson, Cooper, and Cooper's five years old. I, I had him stay overnight with me Friday night. Saturday morning, uh, he and my wife, he calls her Nini. Uh, we're downstairs, and he's coloring and sipping on his, his he calls it coffee, but it's actually tea. And uh, Marla's kind of, you know, doing her quiet time, and I, I came down, got a cup of coffee, and as I always do, I went upstairs to have my quiet time, and Cooper wanted to come upstairs, and, and Marla says, no, you can't go up there. Papa's, Papa's talking to God. And his eyes brighten up, and he goes, God's up there? <laughs> really? Yeah, but Papa's talking to him. You can't bother him. So, you know, it was just eating away at him. Like, he has to go see God, right? So he comes creeping up the stairs, and I can hear him, and I just kind of look out of the corner of my eye, and he's just standing there watching me. And then he kind of creeps back downstairs, and, and <laughs> he goes, Nene, I didn't see God. I think he's camouflaged. Don't you just love the faith of children? I mean, it, it, everything is just so real and so tangible to them, and and for many children who grew up in Christian homes, their, their faith gets fed, and you, know, you, you help them as a parent, you're, you're helping them along in their faith walk with God, and you, know, you bring the church, and we try to help them along. And, but for many kids, they don't have that luxury, and so over time, even though they, they, at an early age, they just have this, this beautiful concept of God, and they just, there's just this trust. And Jesus said, you know, if you're going to enter into the kingdom of God, you've got to enter with the faith of a child, and this just this faith of abandonment and just, tru just trust in God. But somewhere along the line, their faith gets deconstructed. And it might happen in the home where nobody's teaching them about faith, nothing, but he's teaching about how to walk with God. And then it may be accelerated when they get in school and they hear, well, God didn't create you. Or you, were, you evolved out of something or there was the Big Bang Theory. Uh, you know, just everything was just kind of out there and bam, it all came into existence. And so, you, you know, you just, it's about survival of the fittest. And it's about, you know, there's really no meaning or purpose. It's just like we just kind of make our way through life, and that begins deconstructing their faith. And then, then they experience life, and they get in junior high school, and people are making fun of them or bullying them. And it, it worse is that they experience some kind of abuse from an authority figure. Maybe it's a parent, an aunt, uncle. Even worse is they are sexually abused, which is like rampant in our day and time, sexual abuse against children. Um, I have a friend who's a nurse working on her PhD with mental health issues with kids. She said almost, almost every child with mental issues has been sexually abused in some way, form or fashion. 
is rampant in our, in our country. And then Satan comes along and further deconstructs them and says, hey, you know, if God really loved you, if he really cared about you, he would have protected you. He would have kept that from happening. That should have never happened to you. God was, he doesn't care about you. I told you he doesn't care about you. And so their, their faith just starts to, to deconstruct. And then other things happen in life and disappointments and Maybe they try to pray to God and ask for something, and God doesn't let, doesn't, it just doesn't happen for them, and Satan talks to them even more. We are living in a time, an unprecedented time. I don't think I've read more articles, read more things on social media where famous pastors, those who, who head up Christian bands and groups, are talking about the deconstructing of their faith. I once was a follower of Jesus, but now I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. What is going on? Why would a person deconstruct their faith? Now, the biblical term for that is called falling away, and people falling away from the Lord is not anything new. In fact, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy one time, hey, Demas has left me. He's gone back to the ways of the world uh, he's, he's fallen away. He's walked away from the Lord. Another biblical term is called apostasy, and a, probably the biggest example of an apostate would be G- Judas, Jesus' disciple who, who was on the inner circle with Jesus. I mean, he, you know, Peter, James, and John were the inner, inner circle, but Judas was like, he, he was the um, keeper of the money, and he witnessed all kinds of things. He witnessed Jesus' teachings. He watched the miracles. He watched people's lives just be radically transformed. But then all of a sudden, um, Judas deconstructed and decided to, to give up Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And so an apostate is somebody who looks like they're a Christian and may act like a Christian for a period of time, but eventually they walk away from the faith never to return. So this is the difference between Judas and the prodigal son. The prodigal son walked away from his father representing God, but the prodigal son eventually came to his senses and came back. An apostate never comes back. They walk away, and what was thought to be a Christian, it is simply exposed that they were really never a believer to begin with. Uh, John says at one time, if if, if they really been of us, they would have stayed with us. So this deconstruction of, of faith, um, what further deconstructs people's faith or belief or want willingness to trust in God is when they come to a passage that we're going to look at here in Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. Remember, Paul has, has talked about the glorious gospel. The, the entire book of Romans is based on two verses, Romans 1, 16 through 17, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. It brings to us a, a righteousness uh, not of our own. And, and then Paul just takes the rest of this book and he elaborates on those two verses. And then he comes out of the gate and he says in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So that men are without excuse. 
For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And you're going to read this phrase three times, and God gave them over, and God gave them over, and God gave them them over. And so this this wrath of God concept. See, people have the idea and they say, this is a stumbling block for me. How can God be a loving, gracious, kind, merciful God? But then you tell me he's got this wrath, there's this judgment thing, and he's going to send people to hell. I cannot love a God who would send people out into an eternal existence apart from him simply because they've done some wrong things. I don't get it. There are even those who cannot accept the substitutionary atonement of Christ, um, there, uh, which means that Jesus you know, was placed on the cross and he became our substitute and God laid our sin debt upon him and poured out his wrath upon Christ in our place so that through him we might escape God's wrath. And they say, you know what? There's been authors who said that is nothing but a, a divine form of child abuse. And so, um, others ask, man, why is God so stinking angry? Like, give it a rest already. Why all the anger? Why all the, the judgment? And so, any explanation of the good news of the gospel has to be put against the backdrop of the back new, bad news of our condition. And this is what Paul does. It's like, if... You go to buy a diamond ring, what the jeweler is going to do is lay that diamond ring against the backdrop of, of a black you know, felt uh, board because he wants you to see the brilliance of the ring against the backdrop of the blackness of the board. Well, this is what Paul's going to do in the book of, Ephesians, book of Romans as he's marching us towards Romans chapter 3 that says, listen, I'm telling you, here's the conclusion, because Paul is setting himself up like a prosecuting attorney. Humanity is on trial, and he's saying, listen, here's the conclusion. There's none righteous, no, not one. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. The wages of sin is death. I'm telling you, that is God's rendering. It is his judgment. That's his conclusion. Now, if that's where it stopped, we would be, we'd be in a heap of trouble. But he didn't stop with that, did he? He said, the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God has an answer to our problem. But Paul's going to address this, and he's going to address four different groups of people. And I put this on your outline. The verses we're looking at this morning, he's going to address the, the rebellious, right? All of us came out into the world spiritually dead. Therefore, we came with a natural bent towards rebellion. Right? If you don't believe that, anyone who's ever had kids knows better. Right? They reach that little tender age of two, and it's no, no, um, no. Right? So they're, they're exercising their little rebellious spirit. And I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better. And when they get to be teenagers, you're like, who in the world stole my kids and brought these aliens and dropped them off in my household? Now, the, now the experts tell me that your brain does not stop um, maturing until you're about 25, 26 years of age. So mom, dad, if you can make it to there, uh, you're okay. Uh, it, it gets better after that. 
it's amazing to your children how much wiser you become as a parent when they reach that age. Like, oh, I never knew that. I didn't. Why didn't you tell me that? And then he's going to talk in chapter 2 about the respectable. Respectable people are just nice people, right? People say, well, I, I struggle with this thing with God and his judgment and his wrath. I mean, this is a nice person. They're just, they're really nice people. Why would God pick on them? Why, why, would, why would he judge them? And Paul's going to, he's going to dissect that and say, oh, well, well, let me tell you why. And then there's the religious. The next category he, he gives us. And, and so that's religion in general. People are religious in general. But specifically, he's going to talk about religious Jews, right? He's going to say, because they say, look, we had fathers, Abraham's our father. We're good. We're tight with God. And he's going to say, oh, no, 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 you're not. Uh, Abraham's not who saves you. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves you. Therefore, uh, there's only one way uh, to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. And that's through him, right? So uh, he's going to talk about because people are religious all over the world. And so what do people say? Well, I don't believe God's as God of judgment. I believe that there are many pathways to God, and we're all just trying to get to the same place. You may be traveling your pathway. They may be traveling their pathway. But ultimately, we all end up in the same place. Right? That's why every funeral you've ever been to, the person in that casket is going to a better place. They've gone to a better place. They're at peace. Well, there's a reason why we... There's a reason why we lie to ourselves that way. And then there is the, the, he just goes in the last chapter of chapter 3, he goes the entire human race. So in each of these sections, Paul is reminding them of their knowledge of God's goodness and confronts the particular group with the fact that, listen, you've not lived up to that. You have suppressed the truth. You have contradicted the truth. And as a result, you are all guilty before God and without excuse. This is what God says. So before you go hating on me, I'm just the messenger. This is what God says. This is what he teaches us. So why would we deny the truth? Why would we suppress the truth of what God says? We're going to discover that together. So let me give you the deconstruction downward spiral as I see it in these verses. Number one is that ingratitude, ingratitude leads to suppression of the truth. Uh, you'll notice he, he says... Um, down in verse 21, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Ungrateful, no gratitude. After giving this glorious introduction and says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. And Paul then says, there's a righteousness that can be, has been revealed that we can now receive. And Paul explains now mankind's need for the gospel and every individual's need for that gospel. But rather than being grateful for the gospel, people deny it. They suppress the truth that surrounds it. And there's a reason for that. Because at the core of our being, we are rebellious. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want anybody controlling my life. I don't want anybody calling the shots. In essence, I'm refusing to surrender my heart under the Lordship of Christ. I might acknowledge there is a God that exists. I might even give you the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, Jesus died, buried, and was resurrected. So what? He ain't having control over my life. I'm not bowing my knee to him. No way. Um, thank you, God, but no thank you. Not happening. And so Paul talks about God's wrath uh, as much as a part of 
his attribute as his, his love and his mercy and his grace and his patience and his kindness and holiness and righteousness. And people hear this and they, they walk away and say, I don't agree with that. And things that we don't agree with, that we find distasteful, things that we feel like are meaningless to our society, what do we do in this day and time? We exclude it from our culture. We call it cancel culture. It's like, like, we just canceled. I'm, 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 nah, I'm not hearing that. I'm not going to listen to that. Nah, and, uh, we're just canceled out. Act like it doesn't exist and we'll all be okay. Bad decision. And so Paul says, listen, we understand that God's wrath is already being revealed. Not somewhere in the future. This is present tense. Like right now, it's being revealed. So what is God's wrath? This is where people make mistake and I have a tendency to look at God's attributes, and we try to frame them in the context of our human relationships, right? So when somebody's really wrathful, if, if I say you're a wrathful person, I'm probably saying uh, there's a Greek word called thumos, and, and it means that somebody just like flies off the handle. Like you're just like somebody says some little thing, and you're all over them. You're flying off the handle, and your anger's just pouring out, and you may be saying things and throwing things, and it's like a a child with a bad temper tantrum. That's the way people view God, but that's not the word that is used here concerning God's wrath. It is the Greek word orge, which means a settled conviction. In essence, what God says, as my wrath is being revealed, I've already settled the issue. The wages of sin is death. That sin must be paid for. That the wage, the payment of that sin is Death, not just physical death. There are many kinds of deaths that we can experience. The death of our conscience. The Bible calls it the searing of the conscience, where we, we don't even feel anything anymore. And so d- death of relationships. How many, relation, how many divorces do we have in our country every year? The death of a relationship. There are all kinds of deaths that we can experience. And so what he's saying is that, listen, God is not some, you know, just like, hateful, vindictive, selfish, malicious, spiteful person that just pours out, just like, I can't wait till humanity did something wrong so I can just pour out on them. When it says God's wrath is being revealed, what that means is the phrase, God gave them over. And what that simply means is this. God says to humanity, if you want to reject me, you, you may acknowledge me, if you want to reject me, that's fine. And you can go off and do whatever it is you want to do. But I'm telling you, there are consequences attached to your actions. And so God just gives them over to their desires and allows them to experience the natural consequences of their sins. And ultimately, if a person extends that through their lifetime until the point they die, then they will have to suffer the consequences and bear the wrath of God for their sins for eternity. But God says, I, that's not my deal for anyone. I've provided an avenue by which you can bypass that, and his name is Jesus. It is the gospel. It is the good news. It is the grace of God in personified through the, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And so let me uh, give you a couple other terms that he uses here. Uh, so God's wrath revealed is giving man over to his own desires. And he says, this is against godlessness, all right? Godlessness means to live as though God does not exist. Now, you may acknowledge that he's out there somewhere, but you don't live like he exists. It's what I call practical atheism, right? You, you can acknowledge it, but you're not living like it. 
And so this is really vindictive against God, this um, vertical relationship. Godlessness refers to living without any rules or restrictions. And it really impacts our horizontal relationships. Like, so we live in a time where everybody says, well, there's no absolute truth. There's no absolute morals. Uh, you do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll all be good, right? Kumbaya. And if you, you don't like my thing, then you're hating on me. And, and then we get all involved in all kinds of, of you know, uh, ramifications for that. And so, the, listen, so this is vindictive against God and our horizontal relationships. What were the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave us? Love God and love others. And so, but if I'm not living surrendered under the lordship of Jesus, that's just not going to happen. I'm going to live for self. Like when I was not a believer, I could care less if I brought pain into your life. I could care less if I destroyed your vehicle. I could care less what I did to you and how it impacted you and affected you because the world revolved around me and my wishes and my desires, and that's just the way it's going to be. I was already angry and bitter with life and with the world, so it didn't really matter what the consequences were that, that particular time in my life. And this is what he's saying. And so what God did, he says, okay, big boy, you want to have it that way? Go for it. But I'm telling you, Consequences are coming. Sure enough, I end up in police department. I'm being arrested. Now I'm being told I'm going to have to go to juvenile court and we'll probably end up in juvenile detention center. And so here's, notice what Paul says, what we do with this. We suppress the truth. What does that mean? When it comes to God, we know, but we don't know because we don't want to know. To suppress the truth means to push it down, to um, hide it, to conceal it. See, people know in our hearts because God has put eternity in our hearts that there is a God. We know that instinctively, but we really don't want to know. And I really, and I really, I don't, I don't know because I really don't want to know, right? Because if I really acknowledge that, now I'm responsible for it. So let me give an example out of World War II. Um, at the end of World War II, the first town with a concentration camp that the Allied forces liberated was, and I'll probably butcher the name, is Ordorf, Germany. And so the, the Nazis tried to get rid of the evidence of the concentration camp and all the dead bodies that were laying around that town, hundreds and hundreds of them. Well, the Allied forces got there before they could clear it out. And once they saw that, I mean, just people had been butchered all over the place in this concentration camp. A few hours after that, General Patton came on the scene, and when he arrived on the scene and saw the atrocity of what happened in that town, he vomited. And then, once he got himself together, he called the mayor and his wife of that town and said, I want you to look at what is going on here. They had to have known what was going on there. But they said they didn't know, and the reason they didn't know is because they really just didn't want to know. And so what General Patton did was make the mayor and his wife and his soldiers and any able-bodied person on site dig graves for every one of those bodies. They had a funeral service for those, for those, um, those dead individuals, and at the conclusion of that, and they were wrapping things up, 
General Patton left that town, got news a few days later that the mayor and his wife had committed suicide, and they left a note behind. And in essence, that's what the note said. We didn't know, but we did know, but we didn't want to know. This is what Paul is describing here. In fact, Paul says there are, there are ways that, that God has displayed himself. There are three of them, and uh, I'll just list them off. And one is through creation. This is what he says. He says, listen, God has displayed himself in the glories and the galaxies uh, through all of his creation. God is, listen, that's, creation is God's first missionary. It says there is a God who has created all of this, who sustains all of this. And so everyone knows when they look into creation, that there is someone outside of time, space, and matter who created all this. Because if you're going to be creating time, space, and matter, you have to be beyond time, space, and matter. And when you go beyond time, space, and matter, who do you run into? You run into God. And so God has created all these things. And so I love what the psalmist says in uh, Psalm uh, 91. I will, I will read it because he put it so eloquently. It says this, it says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Now, there have been a lot of people who have tried to explain creation apart from God, Big Bang, evolution. In his book, God Delusion, Richard Dawkins, uh, late Richard Dawkins, an atheist, he says, you know what? Darwin's theory works for biology, but not for cosmology. In other words, he was saying that cosmology, creation, is waiting for is Darwin. So here's what he's saying is that, listen, Darwin explained beautifully and eloquently how mankind came to being, but we, we can't explain where all the stuff came from that created the heavens and the earth and, and all that exists. But be, but here's what he says in his book, but do not be dismayed, someday we'll find it. Well, you go with that if you want. I'm going with God. The marvels of the human body. The Bible says we were fearfully and wonderfully made. Do you know the size of the human heart is the size of your fist, weighs 12 pounds, and does enough work in 12 hours to lift 65 tons off the ground for an, an inch off the ground? It's the, the, the marvel of the human body, the complexity of it, all screams there is a designer behind the design. There is intelligence behind the design. And then you have your conscience. Not only you have Christ, you have your conscience. We know that feelings and moral obligations uh, point to a divine lawgiver that we will give an account to. All human beings have a sense of sh shame, guilt, right or wrong, even though you might sear your conscience and, and throw all that aside. I mean, this is common in all human cultures. But you don't find this in the animal kingdom, right? You know what I know about a cat? A cat loves to play with its prey before it eats it. It'll bat around a mouse, a bird. I display. I watched this in my front yard last summer. This cat jumped like 15 feet, hit the tree that had a, you know, it's just a small tree that had three little birds in it. Knocked one of them out of the nest and just started playing with that thing before I knew it was going to try to devour it. Just playing around with, toying with it. So I ran the cat off. Do you think that when cats do that and they devour their prey, that they then crawl under a bed and feel guilty about what they've just done? I don't think so. 
Do you think a lion that mauls somebody is all of a sudden goes into deep, dark depression because it mauled a human being and killed them? Do you think that sharks that attack human beings, that they all of a sudden feel like, wow, you know what? I've got a bad rap. I just don't eat everything I see. I'm telling you, I really feel bad about this. No, you don't see any of that in the animal kingdom, but you see it in humanity because God has given us a conscience. We can violate that conscience. We can sear that conscience. We can deny that conscience, but it is there. And then there's Christ, right? This is the word of God. The evidence is overwhelming. And he says, now they're, in, un, they're ungrateful, right? And when you're ungrateful, you say, God, all right, you, you may have created everything. You may have, my conscience cry. I give you all that, but I'm telling you, I'm not going to thank you. I'm not going to praise you. I'm not going to worship you. I'm not going to bow down to you. I'm not submitting my life to you. I'm telling you, I am my own God. My life orbits around me and not you. And therefore, that is the way it will always, always be. And so the logic is there is a God who created the planet and, and you, just as he has a plan and a design for the planet, he probably has a design and plan for you that we're to submit to and obey and worship and yield ourselves over to. But a rebellious spirit says, I, I will not. I will not do that. So this... Um, Ingratitude leads to suppression of the truth. I, I, instinctively, I know, but I don't know because I don't really don't want to know. And so this suppression of the truth then leads us to this, the next de, uh, deconstruction process. Suppression of the truth leads to the darkness of the soul. The darkness of your soul. It says that they refuse to, they refuse to glorify God. What does it mean to glorify God? To glorify something means that you admire, you put, you, like you set something up on your mantle because you want people to admire it. And so it's, you're setting it up as a, as a piece of glory. And so to glorify God means that, um, that I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put God on display through my life so that people know what he looks like. like, like so this is, this is a part of the goal, right? God conforming us to the image of Jesus so that people see more and more Jesus through us, fruit of the Holy Spirit, so that when God, God people in, encounter us, when they see us, they watch us, they see a reflection of Christ, and it causes them to say, you know what, what is it, what, what is it that made such a unique difference in your life? Why are you that way? Why are you doing these other things? And why, why are you so so good. It's, I'm not good because I'm trying to earn my way to heaven. I'm good because Jesus changed my life. And that Jesus is always in the process of changing my life. And he's always like a, a, a crafted, you know, a jeweler. He, he sees the diamond and he sees the flaws in the diamond. And he starts taking away the flaws as he's conforming us to the image of Christ. So the brilliance of Christ, we begin to show the mind of Christ and the character of Christ and the life of Christ because our goal is to glorify and honor our Heavenly Father who saved us and who loves us in an incredible way. But rather than being allowing God to be at the center of my existence, those who with a rebellious heart want to be at the center of their own existence. They want to be the hub of the wheel of their life. And he says, notice, he says, they become futile in their thinking. To be futile means you, it's pointless. It's like there's no purpose. Christianity teaches that we were created in Christ with a purpose. 
You know, anthropologists tell us that we are tele-creatures, that we are purpose-driven people. We, we need something to drive us, to keep us motivated, because if I reach a point in my life where I lose my sense of purpose or my reason for existing, that's when I get depressed and I can lapse into depression to the degree that I will willingly commit suicide because I see no hope, I see no future, I, I see nothing that is motivating to my life to continue on. And so, um, this is why we, we try to live, people try to live their lives and say, well, I, I, there's no, you know, they're taught there's really no purpose, rhyme, reason, purpose, eat, drink, and be merry, because in the end we all die, and so there's no right or wrong, there's no more absolutes, there's no none of this, there's none of that, and so we, we and God's giving us over to our unbridled human desires, our impulses, and so sin just becomes, runs rampant. As a result of my futile thinking, I, I damage my emotions, right? So my emotions become really dark because I'm going to do things that's going to create all kinds of pain and agony and misery in my life. And if that weren't enough, uh, I move from my emotions to the, the things that I, I do. I'm just rebellious in my will, and I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And and so ingratitude leads to suppression of the truth, and suppression of the truth leads to darkness of the soul, and darkness of the soul leads, Paul says, to all kinds of human problems. You want to look at the human problems in the world today? If I were to stand up 30 years ago and describe our society as it is today, 30 years ago, and said, this is where we're heading as an American, you would have, you would have laughed me off the stage. Well, guess what, baby? It's here. A couple of weeks ago, I spent time with the director of the Christian, virtue, Christian um, group of uh, Christian virtues and, and what's going on in the house and legislation. But this young man showed us all the stuff they're pumping into the minds of our children concerning sexuality. And I want to tell you, this, this wasn't something he made up. He says, let me show you the videos. Let me show you what they're watching. Let me show you what they're teaching. I wanted to throw up by what I saw. I couldn't believe this stuff. And it's time for the church not to remain silent about this stuff. We had better rise up or the minds of our children are going to be so darkened and their emotions so damaged and their wills so rebellious that it's going to be difficult even for the gospel to get into their hearts if we allow things to progress as they are. So this is what he says. He says in three ways. He goes, listen, the first thing that happens is idolatry. He says, listen, they start, what, exchanging the glory of immortal God for images they've made and moral man for the birds and animals, reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in sinful desires and their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies for, with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Notice that word exchange. They exchanged truth for a lie. And they worshiped and craved created things rather than the creator who forever who is to be forever praised. And so idolatry is when a person substitutes some created thing for the creator. It is the thing that occupies your heart that you build your life around. In other words, it's the thing that you think you can't live without. And whatever you think you can't live without, that's your drive, it's your motivation, it's why you get up in the morning, it's why you do what you do. And listen, whatever you put on the throne of your heart, whatever that is, that is what you will bow down and that's what you will worship. 
So be very careful about what it is you're putting at the center of your heart. And so for humanity, those in a rebellious spirit, listen, they are unwilling to put Jesus at the center of their life. Why? Because I want to do my own thing. So what I will put there instead is like relationships. The most important thing in my life are my kids. The most important thing in my life are my grandkids. The most important thing in my life is my spouse. The most important thing in my life is that, I mean, you can go on and on. They, they, security, as long as I have, you know, as long as my life is fairly predictable, as long as I have a job, as long as I have a paycheck, that's all I care about. That's all I'm really living for. That, that is the motivation of my heart. And I can just, you know, do some things when I want to do it. Sometimes it's around a position or recreational activity. You know, I, I just live for golf. I live for fishing. I live for this. I live for that. And so you have replaced God at the center, at the core of your being, or he's just never existed there and you refuse to allow him to be there. This is the rebellious heart. And so what happens is, is that now my mind is becoming darkened. My emotions are becoming a wreck. My will is full-blown, you know, um, rebellion. I don't want to hear about your Jesus. I don't care about him. I, I could care less what he did for me. This is my heart. I don't care. Who? Jesus? So what? And this is my life. I'll do with it what I want. And the Bible says, God is so loving, gracious, and kind. He just says, okay, you do your thing. Have it your way. I'm giving you over to that. But it just degrades from there. I mean, he, he goes on to talk about the inversion of life. He uses, you know, dives into sexual sins, and I'm not going to spend time there. He, obviously, he uses uh, homosexuality as an example. It's not the only sexual perversion in the Bible. There are many sexual perversions in the Bible. But he say, basically, he's saying that, that we, you know, Sex outside of the boundaries of, of the relationship of marriage degrades a person's hum, humanity, whereas mental, marital sex upgrades it. You know, illicit sex, if people are really honest with themselves, you're just wanting something with somebody, right? You're treat, treating them like a commodity because you really want something from them. And so uh, all kinds of things happen and go on. And Paul's not saying, well, this sin is so much greater than any other sin because he doesn't make those divisions and neither does God. He's just simply saying is that life gets inverted when we give ourselves over to our sexual passions and allow them to run rampant. And then he goes on to say in the latter part of those verses, he says, then there's just like, he just calls it iniquity, right? Furthermore, verse 28, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind so that what ought not to be done is being done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Then he lists off 21 kinds of wickedness, right? And he categorizes them. Some of them are economic, some are social, some are spiritual, some are family disorder. And he says, this is what the Bible calls, theologians call total depravity of humanity. We're just like wickedness is running rampant and there's no one to rein it in. Because here's why nobody reigns it in. Verse 32, and although, the, although they know God's righteous decree, they know, 
They know, but they don't want to know because they really don't want to know, right? That those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who, who practice them. And see, this is our, this is our society they are inventors of evil, and one of the dangers of extreme evil is that there is, one, once the floodgates are open, try reining that back in. It's impossible, apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, this is, the, this is why Paul said the power of the gospel, I, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that can save a person, can move them out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, that can heal a person, this is save, heal, deliver, to heal their soul, to, to enlighten their mind, to, to heal their damaged emotions, to, to bring them under the lordship of Jesus so he's at the center of your, their heart so they can develop the mind of Christ and the character of Christ and live the life of Christ so that they can be delivered from the evil one who has a grip hold on their thought life. Because listen, Bad thinking results in bad living. You cannot change your life until first you change the way you think because the way you think affects the way you feel, which then affects the way you act. The mind is the battlefield. Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians. He says that's why we have to bring every thought in take it captive and obedience to Christ because we have to root out the lies and put in its place the truth. It's a lifelong process. What I notice about, again, Paul, he doesn't make distinctions because a lot of people say, well, you know, uh, but I'm just not that bad of a person. You know, I didn't do, I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything. I'm, and they're going to list off things that they consider bad or, you know, harmful. Now, I may not be perfect, but I didn't do those things. And that's the problem. Righteousness requires perfection. God knows that none of us, none are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, that the wages of sin is death. And Paul says, God understands your condition, and here's his solution to your condition. There is no other solution to your condition except for the one that God has prescribed, and it's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why, as the mission of our church, it is essential that everything we do be wrapped around the gospel of Jesus Christ, because I have watched in my life and the lives of so many people who you thought, they, they, they're not worth a plug nickel, there is no way they will ever change, there is no way they'll ever be different than they are, and watch the gospel get a hold of them, and then all of a sudden, they are like a brand new creation in Christ, and you can't even recognize them anymore. Because God has so dramatically changed their life. This is the gospel that we have. So here's, the, here's what we have to do. If we're going to reconstruct our faith, first of all, you've got to examine yourself. Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith, the Bible says. Test yourselves so that you know if you're in Jesus Christ and he is in you. Now, we live in the middle of cancel culture, which is a laser focus on judgment, accusation, and punishment, Right? So if you've done something wrong in the past and they find out about it, man, they're going to exploit it. They're going to put it out there. They're going to cancel you. They're going to drive you out of your job. They're going to drive you off of a platform. 
you know, newscast, whatever it is. That's the way the cancel culture operates. They're never going to let you forget about your past. They're never going to let you live down your past. Do you know that Jesus had a cancel culture? But it wasn't like that cancel culture. You remember when Jesus had a woman who was caught in adultery, red-handed, brought before him, and her accuser says, you know what? Jesus, the law says we need to cancel this woman. We need to stone her to death and throw her in a grave. And Jesus responded by saying, well, that's fine and well. That's what the law says. But whoever has no sin, no sin in your life, you cast the first stone. And he waited. And they walked away. And Jesus looks at that woman and says, Woman, where are your accusers? I don't know, Lord. I do not condemn you. Now, I'm forgiving you of your sin. Now go and sin no more. And she got up. And she walked away because Jesus gripped her by his grace and canceled her sin debt once and for all. And what Jesus did for her, he wants to do for you. Salvation is by faith alone, in Christ alone. It is the gift of God to those who receive it by faith. And then for us, those of you who know your believers, exercise yourself. You need to build up your faith. Listen, stagnant faith is the devil's playground. People who start deconstructing, um, virtually every one of them, when they give their story, their faith stagnated, and the deconstruction process began. What did Jesus do? He worshiped in the word, obeying, dependence on the Holy Spirit, sharing people about the gospel, cultivating relationships. You know what he taught his disciples to do? Those exact same things. Exercise your faith. Be a person who's willing to share the gospel, and your faith will never stagnate. In fact, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. I pray for for everyone who is in this worship center, for everyone who is watching online. And as I pray this morning, I want to pray for you if you if, if in your heart you do not know whether or not you have truly put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for your salvation. It's not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus alone for your salvation. That I, I beg you uh, to settle that issue today. And if there's a check in your spirit that says, I, I'm not doing that. I, I'm, nobody's, I, he's not being the center of my life. Ain't nobody telling me what to do. That's your rebellious spirit speaking. Can I tell you what the end result of that is? It's nothing good. Not one thing. In this life or after this life. God loves you with an incredible love. He's passionate about you. He has a plan and a purpose for your life that will bring you more security, more fulfillment, more joy than anything you could ever think up on your own. And he wants to have a relationship with you. And the way he's provided that is through his son, Jesus Christ. You must receive that gift personally. So if you're here this morning, you want to trust Jesus to be your Savior and the Lord of your life, God's offering you that gift. You just offer up a prayer to God, just expressing that, something like, Lord, I, 
I know in my heart I'm rebellious and I, Lord, I, I knew instinctively that you existed and you, but I just didn't want to know because I, I didn't want to know. I, did, I didn't want to have to face up to the truth about myself. But I see that now and I, I know that I've sinned and fallen short of your glory and I, I have this rebellious heart I don't know what to do with. But I believe that Jesus came and died in my place. That he was buried and rose from the grave. And today I want to put my full trust, my full faith in him to be the Savior and Lord of my life. That he might become the CEO of my life and help guide it and direct it. And enable it to become the life that you created me to be. The life you created for me to have. So I'm asking you. Heavenly Father, to forgive me of my sins. I'm asking Jesus to take up residence in my life. I believe. I believe in Christ and Him alone. Maybe you prayed that prayer and God from sincerity of your heart, his heart says, yes, I, 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 I've done that now. I, I, I've forgiven your sins. I've canceled your debt and I've taken up residence inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit who will be your guide and you'll be your comforter and he'll be the one who enables you to live this life that I've called you to. I want you to know that I've clothed you in the righteousness of my son. When I look at you, I see I see Christ. I don't see your sin. But I have canceled your debt against me. Now let's, let's do life together. Father, I thank you for anyone who prayed that prayer, who has expressed that to you. May, may they make that public. To tell somebody the believer's baptism, Father, we thank you. For we who have experienced that firsthand, that we are the carriers of the gospel. Now we sing praises back to you as we close out our time together and thanking you for allowing us the privilege to take the gospel to the rebellious around us. Lord, may we be found faithful and true to the calling that you put upon our lives to be on mission for you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Let's stand together. We're going to close with this song. If you prayed to receive Christ this morning, I encourage you, after this song, to come and just share that with me. Or at least share it with somebody that you're here with. Put it on your connection card. I'd love to send you some follow-up material. Church, man, let's just pray and ask God just to open some doors of opportunity for us this week to share the gospel. Help people understand how much Jesus cares about them and how much he loves them. What God has has done on our behalf. So let's let's just lift, lift lift this up and just as our closing uh, song of worship to our, our heavenly Father.